Hello, hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon. To serve means to do something for another person that the other person needs. If he doesn't need it and you keep serving him, you're annoying. You're a pest. So what does it mean, Ivdu es Hashem? Serve him. What does he need? Nothing. Because he's God. What does he need? So if he needs nothing, what are you serving him? This is 4S. I'm David Johnson. Let's get started. So what do you want to talk about? What? <laughs> hmm? You don't know? Huh? Anything I want? I'm going to talk about anything I want? Wow. So while the good Rabbi Friedman decides what he's going to talk about, we will go ahead and introduce this show. This is not the show with the special guest that would be kicking off the season two of 4S. He had something come up at the last minute, and so this is what we're doing today. This is also not the first member of the four that would have been a part of this season's Skeptics and Seekers, because this came up at such last-minute notice. There wasn't really a good time to do that. Now, I know that you're confused because Clint Hecock was going to be the first member of a regular rotating panel. And here is a man with a flowing white beard. I have learned that not all men with white beards are the same. This is neither Clint Hecock nor Gandalf. I'm not too sure about Dumbledore, though. At any rate, let's just set this up and get it started. I love talking to rabbis when I have the chance to do so. I used to have a chance to do so on a fairly regular basis, and at least people who are, if not rabbis, knowledgeable about Jewish tradition. The Jewish religion is an interesting beast, and it is the thing from which Christianity comes. It is very hard to understand a syncretistic religion like Christianity Christianity, if you don't understand the religion it was blended with in the first place. So it is helpful to understand a little bit about Judaism from the Jews themselves. So, while this is not a Christian speech at all, and I deal strictly with Christianity and Christian sermons, Christian lectures, Christian ideas, Judaism isn't that far from the tree. It is, one might say, the root of the tree. And Rabbi Friedman, I believe he's speaking to a youth group, 
he's going to cover a lot of interesting topics, as you've seen in the intro. We are going to comment on some of those topics. This might be a very long show. This is, this is in fact, the type of show that I would probably split up into two parts. I'm not going to do that. This is the first episode of Season 2 of 4S. And we did not get our special guest, and so we are going the distance. And I define the distance as that point in which I just can't do it anymore. <laughs> so, or until we reach the end of the show. So, um, we're gonna we're gonna do this all in one go. And with that, let's go. A couple of things I never understood in the Torah. How many times in the Torah does it say God's eyes? Ain't they Hashem? How many times? Only twice? Because he has two eyes? <laughs> How many times does it say Yad Hashem? How many times does it say Pi Hashem? So, does he have eyes? Does he have a mouth? Does he have an arm? Yes? No? No. Yes. You may. Isn't that, I mean, come on, so many times. Dvar Hashem. Does he really speak? If you were there, would you hear him? No. no. Like real speak or or mental talk? <laughs> real speech. Okay. Okay. So many people say, and 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 it says in the in the Mefarshim, that it is not literal. It's only a mushal. Why do we have such a mushal? To help us understand, like every mushal. But to help us understand what? That he doesn't have an arm or a mouth and he doesn't really speak and he... So listen to this example. My, daughter, my granddaughter was crying because her doll broke. So I sat down and I said, I feel so bad because it must have hurt the doll terribly. So she started to laugh. She says, it didn't hurt. I said, what do you mean it didn't hurt? The arm came off. She said, it's not a real arm. <clears throat> I said, how do you know? She said, it's plastic. She's right. A plastic arm is not a real arm. It looks like an arm, but it's not a real arm. What's a real arm? A real arm has to have a bone and skin with muscle, right? 
that's a real arm? A plastic arm is just plastic. A bone and skin is just a bone and skin. It's not a real arm. It looks like an arm, but it's not a real arm. It's just a bone. God has a real arm, a real one. Since we were created in his image, B'Tselem Elohim, that's why we also have something like an arm. But his is the real thing. Ours is just like a doll. So does he really have a mouth? Let's just pause there for a moment, if you don't mind. I, I like the analogy work that he's doing. Don't get me wrong. This is, um, this is typical Jewish rabbi kind of thought process. And it's, it's beautiful in a way. We'll talk about how they interpret the Bible here in a few minutes. But um, God has a real arm. We don't have a real arm because we're just the image of the real thing our arm is no more real than the plastic doll's arm is real but i suppose that really depends on how you define an arm i mean the good rabbi just defined an arm as bone and flesh, skin. So is he saying that God has a bone, flesh, skin arm? The, the doll doesn't have a bone, flesh, skin arm, and so doesn't have a real arm. But we don't have a real arm compared to his God's arm. So what is God's arm then? if our arm is no more real than the doll's. And of course, this kind of analogizing only works if you are committed to the idea that there is a God who is so far above us. I don't know where we would get that commitment from, but I suppose if you grow up in a Jewish tradition, an Orthodox Jewish tradition, it's, it's hard to think any other thought. But let's just try another thought anyway. We don't need a God to work with this analogy. If there were aliens from other planets who visited Earth and looked vaguely like us, with limbs and a head and a trunk, that sort of thing, they would have something that we would call arms. Are they real arms? Well, of course they're real arms. But what if their arms were made out of spaghetti? They would still be real arms. It'd be real arms for that alien, just like our arms are real for us. So what the child would have been asking, uh, or what he would have been asking the child is, D does the doll have human arms. That's the question that we can engage with. And you can say, well, no, the doll doesn't have human arms. The doll has doll arms. 
but those arms are real. Human arms aren't the only real arms. There are plenty of animals on this planet who have arms. They're not human arms. They're real arms. And so, this idea of real, when applied to God, the attempt is to say the only real thing in the universe is God. And everything else is just a poor shadow of God. And I would say that that's not a correct way of thinking. Everything in the universe is as real as everything else. And then it's just a matter of categorization from there. We don't need to imagine that there is a step higher than us and that that thing is the only thing that's real. It's all real. We're all real. So there could be a God. There could even be a creator God. Let's just give him all of that. There could be his God. His God would have a real arm. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a real arm. We do. We are not some inanimate object. We're not a piece of wood. We're not a piece of plastic. We're not like a piece of plastic. But once again, everything in the universe is real. No thing in the universe is more real than another, than anything else. And so a real God would have a real arm just like we do. Now, the way the Christian, I think, would hear this question is, does God have a physical arm? So that would be the other way to ask the question. And I think that maybe the concept of real as in higher and real as in physical get mixed up in Rabbi Friedman's analogy. Because at one moment, he's talking about real as in the highest form. And then another moment, he's talking about real as in physical, I think. So does God have a physical arm made of something that would be like bone and flesh and skin? I think the Christian would probably say no to that. Am I wrong? Are any Christians left listening? Skeptics and seekers. Dot squarespace.com sign into your discuss account and discuss away for the record i would have said no god does not have a real arm that he could reach out and slap you with but whatever he has to the extent that he has anything anatomical it would be real even if it wasn't physical We've got to move past this. It gets more interesting than this. Or we have a real mouth. He has a real one. We have something like it. Does he really speak or we really speak? He said, let there be light. Vayihi. You try it. <laughs> Say it. Say it a hundred times. <laughs> Nothing will happen. Because our speech is not the real. His is the real. Once again, this is kind of this flawed logic. Even assuming higher, that doesn't make it more real 
than something that is not as high. So this is, this is part of the religionist's mindset of saying that there must be a God who is bigger than everything, above everything. It's not just religionists, it's mostly religionists. But there are plenty of people who are agnostic or atheists who still feel this existential need to have something above humanity, something uh, transcendent something higher. And that's where this thought process comes from. It's a faulty thought process, though, to say that maybe there's something higher than humans and to say that that thing has the real thing and we only have a shadow of the thing. So who is the mashal and who is the nimshal? We are the example, not him. So does he really have an arm? Yes. Is it literal, an arm? Yes. An actual arm? Yes. You mean like mine? <laughs> no, because yours is not the real thing. <clears throat> now it makes a little bit of sense. I call my arm an arm because it's a tiny little example of his real arm. So it's not confusing, it's a little bit helpful. But don't think that his arm is like yours, because his arm is the real one. So the Torah is not using words incorrectly, saying he has an arm when he doesn't really. Every word in the Torah is true. So if it says an arm, then it's an arm. Just don't think it's an arm like a doll's arm, because it's a real arm. So we see another part of the thought process that we see in fundamental Christianity. Every word in the Torah is true. And they would agree with that. Every word in the Torah, every word in the Bible is true. Every word in the book of Mark, even the stuff that they know is made up, is true, you see. And so because every word in the Torah is true, God must have an arm we can see how the logic just spirals out of control from there. Then there's another question that really needs explaining. <clears throat> what does it mean, ivdu et Hashem? What does it mean? Anybody know? Huh? Serve Hashem. What does serve mean in English? Who serves? A waiter. Huh? A waiter. So, if a waiter comes over to your table and serves you, and you didn't ask for it, he brings you something you didn't ask for. Is he serving you? Or is he annoying you? <laughs> Getting on your nerves. Huh? Well, you asked for soup, and he brought you uh, kugel. So, excuse me, take this back and bring me some soup. 
said, no, I'm serving. Said, no, but you're not serving me if you don't bring me what I want. To serve means to do something for another person that the other person needs. If he doesn't need it, and you keep serving him, you're annoying. You're a pest. So what does it mean, Ivdu es Hashem? Serve him. What does he need? Nothing. Because he's God. What does he need? So if he needs nothing, what are you serving him? So if you put on the tefillin every, every day, you're serving him? Hmm? If he doesn't need you to put on the tefillin, how are you serving him? You're praising him. Does he need your praise? He wants happy. He he wants it. <clears throat> That's one of the things that really puzzled me for a long, long time. Me too. Would he want something he doesn't really need? Should you want things that you don't need? You, you should. <laughs> you should want all sorts of stuff that you don't need. And then you get all that stuff you want but don't need. What do you do with it? <laughs> you put it in the basement, in the attic, because you don't need it. Okay, now you've gone from preaching to meddling. Uh, look. There's nothing wrong with wanting things that you don't strictly need. In fact, I dare you. This this is a, a kind of a, a religious idea, too. Uh, but it's not stricter, strictly religious. You just hear it a lot in religion. This idea that uh, you should only have what you need, that you should only want what you need. That anything beyond that is, is graft. Now, the name it and claim it folks, they're very much into graft, uh, but not not all brands of fundamentalist religion are. In fact, there are many Christian aesthetics and Jewish aesthetics. The idea that you should strip yourself of all of the things that are not absolutely necessities. This is this is silly. Uh, I think that we don't have to go very far into the thought process to see uh, how silly it is. Just observe the clothes that you are wearing right now. Clothes are not optional for listening to this podcast. So, I mean, you do you. But for those of us who are wearing clothes, just observe the clothes that you're wearing right now. Are those clothes absolutely necessary? I mean, those in particular. Just look at the style and quality of the clothes. Your shirt. Was there a less expensive shirt that you could have purchased? Was there? That would have fit your frame? Was there? Yes. Were there less expensive shoes? that you could have worn those pants 
Those are some nice pants. I know there were cheaper pants that you could have purchased. And so even if you make the case that you need 57 shirts, pants, socks, shoes, underwear, you don't, by the way, but let's, let's just assume that you make that case. You don't need the ones at the level and quality that you have. You see, at the point that you satisfy the need, you just have a pair of shoes, but you've got a pair of shoes that are nice, that have a style to them, and those cost a little bit more. Now you're just into wants. You, you got the shirt that's the color that you wanted. That's the style that you wanted, that has the writing across the front that you wanted. It is almost impossible to separate want and need, and I do not see any reason to do so at all. In fact, I am wearing a shirt. I wish I had a better shirt. The shirt I have is, is nice. I like it. But there are ways that it could be nicer. I cannot afford a better shirt. <laughs> but, but I would like to have a better shirt. You bet I would. Do I need it? Do I need a better shirt? I don't think I can make that case. Do you need a better shirt, a better house, a better car, better pair of shoes, better computer? The question is irrelevant, as near as I can tell. And so, yes, we want things that we don't absolutely <clears throat> need. And I don't see a thing wrong with that. <laughs> this is human. This is Earth. It can handle it. Let's move on. Also, if you want it, but you don't need it, can you change your mind and say, nah, I don't want it anymore? Of course, right? Is it possible that God will change his mind and say, nah, I don't need your tulum? It's not possible? He's not going to do that. He's not going to do it. Huh? So Rambam says, one of the Yud Gimel Ikrim, is that HaTorah Hazot Lo Tehei Muchlefet. God will never change it. How do we know? The answer is because it's not something he wants but doesn't need. Then you can change your mind. Today I want it, tomorrow I don't want it. But by God, there's no such thing. What he wants, he needs. What he needs, he wants. Whatever he does has to be. It's not maybe. <laughs> At Harsinai, God didn't say, Un until further notice, put on Philon. When I lose interest, I'll let you know. <laughs> There's no such thing. It's forever. No? So here's the problem. If God is really perfect, why does he care about anything? So um, we're, we're going to engage uh, with this thought further, but this idea that God's attributes are eternal 
and therefore what he wants and needs is eternal and not situational. That seems to fly in the face of a lot of things. You know, like the slavery laws or keeping Sabbath. You know, temple sacrifices. <laughs> uh, the, these are things that God wanted at one point. Uh, does that mean that he can't stop wanting those things? And thus, those things still apply today? I'm just going to go out on a limb and say Rad Rabbi Friedman doesn't believe that. And so I, I wish he would clarify this thought, which I know he's not. Let's move on. And does anything really matter? He wants to give? Yeah. In other words, even when you're perfect, you want to give. Why? You're already perfect. See, if I give, if I'm generous with what I have, I become a better person. God becomes better when he gives. If he's already perfect, why does he have to give? <laughs> so it must be that he does it l'shem shamayim <laughs> for no reason at all. So let me try, I, th I think I have a little explanation for this. What does it mean God is perfect? What does perfect mean? Okay, so the, the discussion that we were going to have with our special guest was on perfection. So that is, in fact, what drew my attention to this video. It strikes me that different people might have different ideas of what perfection is. And so perhaps we should lean in a little bit as he gets ready to tell us what it means for God to be perfect. I'm curious if it will match your idea of God's perfection or any perfection. <laughs> he doesn't need anything because he's perfect. But what does perfect mean? Anything. Not missing anything. That's very good. God is not missing anything. In other words, he is so perfect that he cannot get any stronger. He can't get any smarter. He can't get any bigger. He can't get any older. He's already, right? So there is no way in which he can make himself bigger or better because he's he's already perfect okay i've got a feeling that christians would agree with that when i was a christian i would have agreed with that but then again i i didn't really think the next thought through don't worry he's he's going to give us the next thought I, but i i wanted to pause right there so that you can hold that definition in your mind god doesn't need anything he has everything there is nothing that can be added to him. Let's see if that definition remains consistent through this explanation. I have my doubts. 
if I don't need anything, would I still find a friend for what? If I was perfect and I don't need anything, why would I want to have a friend? <laughs> to make that person better. But why do I need to do that? I don't. So why would I want a friend? Huh? Because I'm bored? See, I thought about it in terms of marriage. If you're healthy and you're smart and you're capable, why do you need to get married? You see, there's, there's a difference between trying to increase myself or having someone beside myself. So if I really want a friend, it's not because I will become better or smarter as a result. I don't need my friend to make me better. Well, sometimes I do, but then it's not a real friend. Then I'm just using somebody to make myself better. Which is not a bad thing, because I'm not perfect. But if I was perfect, and I really didn't need to incre increase or improve anything in myself, why would I still want a friend? Okay, so this is where your logic twists you into pretzels, Rabbi Friedman. Let, let's just go back a little bit. I don't think that there is a such thing as altruism. There's, there's no such thing as pure altruism. We do things for ourselves. Even the things that we selflessly do for other people are things from which we benefit. There's nothing wrong with that. Not because we're imperfect, but because we're social creatures. We are interconnected social creatures. We cannot be completely self-sufficient. It is impossible. So, especially in today's society, you look at someone like a Unabomber or the freeway shooter. I'm probably dating myself here. It's okay, I'm old. Um, these were people who styled themselves as fiercely independent. And they wrote manifestos. But think about it. They wrote manifestos on paper that they did not make with ink pens that they did not produce. They did it while wearing clothes that they did not sew. They sent packages with bombs in them, but they did not hand deliver them. They sent them via the post office. Or in another case, they shot people from the freeway with guns they did not make, with bullets they did not make. The myth of independence is just that, a myth. We are interconnected social creatures. That is not a mistake.
It is not a bad thing. It is not an imperfection. And so there would be nothing wrong with saying that God is also interdependent. That wouldn't be an imperfection. But because you have to start with a position of God is perfect and complete and doesn't need anything, then you have to you have to find ways to talk about God's making other people besides himself and special plead for it in a way that it's different for God than it would be for us. You see, we need friends because we are dependent on other people. God needs friends because, well, not that. So here's this important idea. God created the world before there was anything, right? So it can't be that he created the world for me because I didn't exist. You didn't exist. Nothing existed. So he created the world before there was anything. <clears throat> and he was already perfect. So why did he create the world? This is really like the most important idea in Judaism. Before God created the world, he was Yahid. He was the only thing. And he was perfect. By creating the world, he is becoming Echad. Hashem Echad. What is the difference between Yahid and Echad? Take a guess. Hmm? <laughs> the spelling is different. <laughs> But in the meaning of it, what is the difference between Yahid and Echad? Oneness. The difference is Yahid means nothing else exists, just me. I am Yahid because there's no one else. Echad means we are all together. So yachid means exclusion. Echad means inclusion. So what happened? When God created the world, he was basically saying, I am yachid and I don't like it. I want to be echad. In other words, I don't want to be the only thing. I want someone else also to exist. Now, if he was talking about a human, then you would say that human was lonely. But people have a hard time ascribing that to God. That is essentially what he is saying. God was the only thing, and he didn't like being the only thing. That is the very definition of loneliness. He created us. And that's why the Medrash says, Bereshit bara, what does that mean? Bishvil Yisrael. He created the world so that we would exist. And now that we exist, what has been accomplished? Now he is not Yachid. Now he is Echad.
So, in other words, God was fundamentally dissatisfied with his state of perfection. Or to put it in different words, you remember where it says in Breshit, it says, Yes? What does it mean? Why was he saying this? Why did God say this? Because that's why he created the world. It's not good to be yachid. Even when you're perfect. So when You can't be perfect if you are fundamentally something that is not good. A person thinks, you know, when I become perfect, I'm not going to need anybody. The more perfect I become, the less I need you, because I'm perfect. That's not the way God is. Because God was perfect and is perfect, that's why he wants someone else besides him, so that they can become echad. Let me just throw this at you. A popular definition that Christians like to throw around for perfection is completeness. What you're saying Rabbi Friedman, is that God felt incomplete. You hear this? God is actually saying, by creating the world, God is saying, I am not satisfied being me. I also want to have you. Now, somebody asked recently, isn't it selfish of God to create the whole world so that everybody will serve him. Doesn't that sound a little selfish? Huh? Yeah. And then he tells us to never be selfish and never be arrogant. Isn't he being selfish and arrogant? Everybody serve me. Everybody praise me. It's the exact opposite. By creating the world, God is showing, I'm not enough. I'm perfect. But that's not good enough. Does he not realize the contradiction in terms, the oxymoronic statements that he's making? Does cognitive dissonance set in at any point? Why? Because it's just me. So what does he do when he creates the world? He creates someone besides him. That's the opposite of arrogance. And that's the opposite of selfish. I'm already perfect. I don't need any favors from you. And yet I make room for you in my life. Why? So that you'll also exist with me. That I won't be alone. Okay. But you still haven't addressed the problem of he wants you to worship him and praise him and sacrifice yourself for him. Um, are we going to get back around to that at all? That's why we get married. Because to be alone is not the godly way. God was alone and he didn't like it. It's not, it's not enough to be yourself there has to be someone else also. Yes? Uh, 
if he needs someone with him, why do you create a one a whole a lot of people and not just one? He has one, he has someone and with that him. person needs someone. They're, they're, the, they're with each other. Huh? He's saying one person. Just create one person and then Hashem will have will have someone serve him. That's why it says that Adam was created alone to tell you that even if there was only one other person, it would justify the whole creation. So why doesn't it stay that way? Because so um, Adam uh, <laughs> ate from the wrong tree. <laughs> okay, here, this is one of the few times in this presentation where it seems like his thought process just stalled. As, as if he got a question that, uh, you know, was not on one of his cue cards. So the question, in case it wasn't clear, why didn't God create just one person so that he wouldn't be alone? Why a whole world of people? What would be the point of all that? And the rabbi says, well, Originally, it was supposed to be just one person. Now, not in a self-congratulatory way, I will point out that I did make this very point in Red Letters last season when uh, talking about marriage. Y you guys know Red Letters, right? Um, Red Letters. It's my Patreon project. You can find it over there. Patreon.com slash Red Letters. Pick up a free book. Join the conversation. You can actually join the conversation on Skeptics and Seekers uh, website now. You know, in, in case you haven't seen that, uh, that's something that I have started doing. So you can go up uh, at the top of the page, see the Red Letters uh, discussion tab, click on it. You can read the write up for that week and discuss. The show is still just for members and you don't have any access to the back catalog. You can get that by becoming a patron, patreon.com slash red letters. Thank you so much for your support. So uh, the answer to the question was, well, God did make only one person. So why did there need to be another person? Because God wasn't making Adam to procreate. <laughs> that, that actually wasn't the point. So, that said, uh, you, you do kind of have to explain, well, wh what is it then with the rest of the population? And what the, I keep bumping the mic, I am sorry about this. Uh, what the good rabbi said was, well, Adam ate from the wrong tree. Now, it's very interesting that there would be trees with fruit that humans would want to eat anyway. I mean, there didn't have to be. Uh, food could have come by any means, there certainly didn't have to be a poison fruit on a magic tree. And uh, the rabbi has left Eve out of this story 
altogether, but okay. Um, God needed more people because Adam ate from the wrong tree is not the sequence of events that I remember when reading the Genesis story. And so I, I just feel like this is one of those times when Rabbi Friedman, who is very well-spoken and self-possessed, maybe just skipped a gear or two here. <clears throat> Every, everything by God is huge. So he wants not only one person, he wants one people. Am Yisrael. So the question is, if you need Am Yisrael, why do you have to have non-Jews? You know what it's like? When you get married, it's just you and your wife. Totally private. And yet, look what's going on upstairs. Right. A man and a woman are getting married, and the whole town is here. Who invited everybody? Only two people are getting married. What are everybody else doing here? Uh -huh. They came to celebrate. For some reason, in order for the marriage to be perfect, the whole community has to celebrate. Now, uh, just a little bit of warning. What's coming up is the stuff that creates anti-Semitism. I am not an anti-Semite. I do not hate Jewish people. I hate Judaism. And it is not my fault that you have tied your religion with your ethnicity. Maybe do some separating there. I despise Judaism even more than Christianity. <laughs> so, um, why? It's coming next. We'll have some more to say about it. Listen close. Even though they're not getting married. So the same way, the relationship that we have with Hashem is like a marriage. All the other nations are like the guests at the wedding. So until now, <laughs> can you imagine if all the guests upstairs are jealous? They're jealous. They want to get married to this kala or this chatan. Imagine how nasty that would be. Everybody making comments like, yeah, what are you marrying him for? What do you think, he's so special? I know, oh, no, he's not so good. That's anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism has been around forever because they're like guests at our wedding and they're all jealous. What's going to happen when Mashiach comes? They're going to become intelligent. You come to somebody's wedding, you don't come to be jealous. You celebrate that they are having a special relationship. That's what's going to happen when Mashiach comes. Instead of being anti-Semitic, they will become guests at our wedding and they will be happy for us that we have this special relationship with Hashem and they will bring presents like the people upstairs are doing and they will actually be complimented that they were invited to such a special event. Don't you feel so complimented that God allowed you to 
exist so that you could be a guest at his party with his chosen people. You're not the chosen people. Stop being jealous. You know you're jealous. Stop being so jealous of God's chosen bride and accept your position as a lowly guest who is here to celebrate someone else's joy and to bring them gifts. They could. They're not going to. They're not going to. Only certain people are meant to convert. Otherwise, they can't. Huh? All right, I got to go back just a second. Uh, so one of the people said that they would convert. So in something that I almost never do, I'm going to rewind a little bit so that you can hear all that. And they're all jealous. What's going to happen when Mashiach comes? They're going to become intelligent. You come to somebody's wedding, you don't come to be jealous. You celebrate that they are having a special relationship. That's what's going to happen when Mashiach comes. Instead of being anti-Semitic, they will become guests at our wedding and they will be happy for us that we have this special relationship with Hashem and they will bring presents like the people upstairs are doing and they will actually be complimented that they were invited to such a special event. They could. They're not going to. They're not going to. Only certain people are meant to convert. Otherwise, they can't. Huh? Not with Hashem. Right? They know that we have a special relationship with Hashem. Until now, they've been jealous. Now they're going to become a little more mature and they're going to say, wow, you guys really have something special. Can we come to the party? And this is what he's teaching to young people. I... And if we're invited to the party, that's our honor. A little bit that's happening already. Like Yerushalayim becoming the capital again. Because people are saying, yes, they have something special. They are the chosen people. Why are we being jealous? So that's what the Navi says. The Navi says that every nation will come to contribute something to build the Beit HaMikdash. Like guests coming to a wedding. So what's happening upstairs is the solution to anti-Semitism. <laughs> That's how it's going to all resolve itself. So, Ivdu Es Hashem means you're doing for him what he needs. What does he need? Tefillin, Shabbat, Kashrut, what does he really need? He needs us to be echad with him. 
How do we become one with him? He keeps Shabbat. We keep it with him. He puts on tefillin. For real, we put on tefillin. That way we are with him. But imagine if you're sitting by the table on Shabbat and you're celebrating Shabbat and your children don't want to come to the table. They're still your children. But they're not echad with you. They're fighting with you. So the mitzvot that God gives us is so that we will become echad with him. And that's what he wants. He wants echad. And that's why before we do any mitzvah, we first have to know Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. I think the party is starting. Wow, that was a short party. <laughs> any questions? Any answers? No questions? What happens if a person sins and then he dies? What happens to him? So what happens? Because he sinned. Huh? He has a judgment, and if he's guilty... Downstairs. Downstairs. In the basement. Uh -huh. Well, why not she? Shechina is a she. I think you're following the, uh, the theme. If he wants a relationship, then, it's, then he's not an it anymore. An it doesn't want a relationship. A he and a she need each other. So the question is, should he be a he or a she? So the problem is, not what he is, but what we are. Because if, if Hashem is the she, then we have to be the he. That's not good. What? What century is this again? There was a big debate between um, some famous, famous rabbi and the Christians back in the olden days. And um, the Christian asked the rabbi, how come in your, in your Torah, God is so punishing? He punishes and punishes, and he's angry, and he's... The answer was brilliant. The rabbi said, it's because we would rather that he does the punishing than that we should do the punishing. 
By you, your God doesn't punish. So you punish everybody. You make the crusades and you make the inquisitions and you torture people. Better leave it to him. <laughs> Let him be the he. We want to be the she. Right? Also because he married us, which is the masculine. He came to take us out of Mitzrayim. So what is this thing about Gehenim? Anyway. He 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 married us. So he's the he. Two thousand twenty-three or twenty-three BC. What the hell? Anybody know? What's Gehenna? A place for bad people. Purgatory. <laughs> That's good. So it's a dry cleaner. Or, you know? <laughs> Depends how much cleaning you need. There's a fire, there's hot water, it boils. What, what, what's going on over there? How do you boil a, a soul? How does Anishama get punished? Huh? The only way that a, that a soul can suffer is from shame. So imagine... An okay, I'm sorry. Um, I, I missed some classes in Metaphysics 101. Uh, the only way a soul can suffer is from shame. Now, I'm not a substance dualist. I'll be the first to admit, I don't know the first thing about what souls are supposed to be, but I am beginning to suspect that religionists are just making this shit up as they go. The Shama comes to Shamayim, and all the other souls are there, and, and you don't remember how to be a soul because you're used to being a body. That's very embarrassing. It's like walking into a shul and you don't know when to stand, when to sit, when to turn around. When... So what is, what is the punishment of the, of the sin? The embarrassment. When the soul, yeah, when the soul goes back to a world of souls, and it doesn't fit in, very embarrassing. What happens when you get embarrassed? You burn. You burn with shame. Right? So, Gehen Gehenna is not a place. It's like, heaven goes up and this will go down. There's no up or down. You have two souls, side by side. One is in heaven because it, because it knows how to be a soul. And the other one sitting right next to it is embarrassed. So he's in Gehenna. How long can you be embarrassed? Up to 12 months. Maximum. Just, just a moment before we... Gehenna is not a place. The Valley of Him is definitely a place. Uh, let's go back to the... the 
punishment of embarrassment, though, because this makes perfect sense. And that's why we say Kaddish for 11. Because we don't want to suggest that this guy needed the maximum. <laughs> but on the other hand, maybe he did. <laughs> so, so we say 11 months, not 12. But what is, what is Gehenna? Gehenna simply means you're embarrassed. Heaven means you come back after 80, 90, 100 years on earth, you come back and you remember how to be a neshama. It's as if you never left. Okay, uh, just trying to understand this cosmology uh, here. <clears throat> so we're in heaven, or at least the chosen people are in heaven. And they come to earth for 80, 90, 100 years, and then they return to heaven and remember it all as if they never left. Right? But a few minutes ago, God was alone, and the only person he created was Adam. Not in heaven. On earth. And so... For this part of his presentation to make sense, souls would have had to have been in heaven before creation, and then they come here for a little while, and then they go back and remember what a soul is supposed to be. You can choose door number two there, or you can choose door number one, which is God was alone and created Adam on earth. Would it be appropriate now to say bad shit, crazy? That's heaven. So what is the shame or what is the fear of going to Gehenna? The shame. But the shame for doing a sin you don't have to wait until you get to Gehenna. If you're embarrassed by your sin, you're already clean, cleaned. You've already burned it off. Wow. Wow, really? That's it? So we can do tshuva on earth, and then we don't have to go to Gehenna because we were already embarrassed. We were already ashamed. And the shame burns off the sin. So the worst thing is a person who does a sin and he's not ashamed. He has no shame, no busha. That means that he's lost his conscience. He is so insensitive, he's not even ashamed. And then something else has to embarrass him in order to get him to get cleaned up. But if we're embarrassed ourselves, we don't have to go to Gehenna. Where does this notion come that Gehenna is, is downstairs? I, mean, I know Korah, when he went under, that's the petah of Gehenna. But where does this notion come from? Because we, you know, we put everything into physical. You know? So we say, holy is up. 
Unholy is down. We, we don't mean physically up or down. We mean this is higher and this is lower. This is more and this is less. But not physically. Not physically. So there is no physical place where you can go uh, visit <laughs> on visiting day. I don't know if they have visiting day in Gehenna. I think they have. I mean, if you have a relative there, can you go visit? Bring them some candy. I mean, something. <laughs> of course you can. You can be sitting right next to him. But you're not embarrassed. And he is, so he's in Gehenna, and you're not. So you can give him a candy. <clears throat> in other words, we don't have to wait for Gehenna to clean us. We can clean ourselves. That's the power of tshuva. And that's what this month coming up, the month of Elul, getting ready for Rosh Hashanah, it's a time when we can be embarrassed ourselves by what we did wrong, and we don't want to do it again next year. So we're getting ready for Hashanah Tova. A better year than last year because no embarrassment. We don't embarrass ourselves. See, Yom Kippur doesn't mean forgiveness. What is the Hebrew word for forgiveness? Mechila. What is kapara? Yom Kippur. Kapara means clean, cleansed. You first you're forgiven because you regret your sin and you're not going to do it again. That's it, you're forgiven. But now, what about the fact that you did sin? How do you erase that? So in other words, once you are embarrassed and you say you're not going to do it again, God is not angry at you anymore. You're forgiven. But what about the fact that you messed up? Like, you threw a baseball through my window. And you apologize, and I say, fine, I forgive you. Who's going to fix the window? <laughs> you broke the window. So I'm not angry at you. I'm not going to punish you. I'm not going to scream at you, but somebody's got to fix the window. So that's Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur fixes the damage that the Avera created. But you can be forgiven any time. As soon as you stop sinning and you say, I'm sorry, God forgives you. So it really is a cleaning, not a forgiving. Now I want to tell you one more amazing thing. What was Moshe Rabbeinu's biggest uh, mistake? Now, Jewish people, look at this. A rock listens and you can't? So here was Moshe's problem. Should I do what makes Hashem look good to Am Yisrael? Or should I do something that will protect Am Yisrael and not make them look bad to Hashem? In other words, a Jewish leader, what is his first obligation to Hashem or to the people? 
See, that's why <clears throat> he is called a shepherd. A shepherd has that problem. He's out in the field taking care of the sheep. And there's some danger to the sheep. Should he worry about the sheep or should he worry about the owner of the sheep? They would both be very good. But the owner expects him to take care of the sheep. That's why he hired him. Because he knows that he will be devoted to the sheep. So Moshe felt that he has to stay loyal to the people and therefore end up where they are. So why is it? He spoke, he hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock. What was the punishment? Can't go into Israel. How does that fit? What does that have to do with anything? Just because it was the thing he wanted most? So God, so, so God said, no, the, that what you want most, you're not getting. That's just cruel. So Moshe knew that if when he hits the rock, he is going to be buried together with the people that he is protecting. So he wasn't surprised when Hashem said, you're not going into the land. Of course not. The people are not going, and I'm not leaving them here alone. Of course he wanted to go. But with the people, not without the people. Why do you pray? That, that they should all go. So here's an amazing thing. The Medrash says that that generation that died in the desert, why did they die in the desert? Because they didn't want to go into Israel. So the Medrash says that all those souls that came out of Egypt and didn't want to go into Eretz Yisrael, they will never go into Eretz Yisrael. They will not uh, have Tchiyat HaMetim, and they will not be in Eretz Yisrael ever. Uh, however, since Moshe Rabbeinu is buried with them in the same desert, and he is coming, he will be resurrected, so in his schut, they can also come. Which means that by being buried with them, he guarantees that they will make it to Eretz Yisrael. Okay. That's not the end of this, but I did say that I was going to go as far as I could make it. And this is as far as I can make it. Um... For any number of reasons. One, I, I, I've just had enough. I've listened to this a couple of times now. I can't do it. Can't go any further, brother. Um, the other thing is I'm, uh, I've got low glucose right now. And so I need to stop and go get something to eat. So this is a good time to stop. And I think most of the good stuff has passed. There's, there's some other stuff in this speech. Uh, like I said, one of the things that I uh, took away from this is something that I've observed with uh, other rabbis that I have the uh, pleasure of knowing. So a rabbi is uh, kind of a person who has reached a position in Jewish society where their opinion matters. 
and I'm oversimplifying this a little bit, but their opinion means something, whereas your opinion, maybe not so much. So it it's a respected place, and of course everyone has a right to their opinion, but a rabbi's opinion is maybe a little more, is all. All right, so that's a little bit similar to how Christian preachers work, but then things diverge quite a bit, because the way rabbis read the Bible and the way they interpret, they're, in fact, I would say their main uh, exegetical, uh, her hermeneutical tool would be story. Hermeneutics by story. Hermeneutics, just a big word for uh, in how you interpret a document. And Jewish rabbis interpret stories. They talk about everything through story. Their story is told through story. All of the Old Testament, you can say these are books of history or books of poetry. They're really just books of story. And whether you take the stories literally or not almost doesn't matter because you're, you're interpreting the story itself. This is what the story means. You know, you see, Timmy, when Moses struck the rock and then God didn't let him go into the promised land, this is the underlying message of that story. This is, this is kind of, uh, how Jews interpret. Christians, especially fundamentalists, tend to be more on the lines of legalistic code. I don't mean that in a bad way, but God is a being who has a message. If we're going to understand that message, we need to know what that message is. And part of that message is command and prohibition. So we have to know what God wants and what he wants us to avoid. There are, there are commands and prohibitions that need to be understood and sorted. And so story is not the primary way that mainstream Christians interpret the Bible. They interpret the Bible more like a legal code. A lawyer doesn't go into court and cite a, a particular law and tell a story about it. That's, that's not an interpretive measure. No, we, we cite a particular law so that we can, as close as possible, present the answer that we seek in very precise terms. This is what the lawmaker had in mind when they made the law. And this is exactly what that law is. And this is how it should be applied. And we take that same sensibility to scripture, more or less. The, the Jew does not particularly do that. That's not how the Midrashes work. That's not how any of that works at all. In fact, I don't know this for sure, but I my guess would be that Jews would possibly even be somewhat offended that you know exactly what the will of God 
is in a very precise way. I mean, they can't even say the name of God, right? Uh, it's too sacred. And so to say God's sacred words, I mean, we can, we can know the words, but to understand the words fully is to claim to understand the mind of God, and which, which is something that I don't know that Jews would say. So they don't, they don't read their Bible the same way we read our Bible. They read their Bible as a collection of stories, almost like fables, uh, parables even, where then they try to get the meaning from those stories. Does this sound familiar? Jesus and parables. Everything with Jesus was about telling stories, mystical stories that largely people couldn't understand. And then it was the work of the, the rabbi to explain the stories to their people. Okay. I keep bumping the mic. I, sorry. Usually I hang this upside down. There, there's a reason I didn't do it. Um, I'll just try to be more careful. Um, okay. When your interpretive tool is storing, then there can be no quote unquote true interpretation of scripture. There's just one person's opinion of how they interpret a story versus another person's opinion. Now we can't have chaos with, you know, millions of people with their own opinions. So the rabbi gets to have the opinion in that community. Now Jews like to argue, it's not like they hear the rabbi and that's, that's the end of it. But the rabbi's opinion carries a lot of weight. But all they're really doing is reading mystical stories and interpreting them in ways that might mean something to their community. When that is what you're doing, there is no way to really have, in my opinion, a good debate, a good conversation about any of this, because we're all looking at the same material. But if you're reading it as just stories where you make up the moral of the story, and I'm reading it like legal code to see what it really means, we're never going to meet. And there's no way that I can prove that your story is wrong. And there's no way that you can prove that my legal meaning is wrong. And we're just saying stuff. And this is, this is part of the problem with Jewish rabbi preaching. <laughs> it's, I could, I could bring up another rabbi and he would tell these stories and get a completely different meaning from these things. Uh, you can poll 10 different rabbis and I doubt that you would get the majority of them agreeing with this idea that the punishment for a soul, the only way to punish a soul, a soul is with embarrassment. I mean, that's, that's a nice novel idea. I also don't know that you would get a a lot of rabbis who would say that Moses was actually doing something noble when he struck the rock. He was protecting the people and ensuring that they would 
you know, upon resurrection, go into the promised land. This kind of stuff is, you know, we can, I guess we can look at the stories and we can throw in our own meaning into it. I don't see what the point is if, if that's all we're doing. And unfortunately, there is, uh, well, I say unfortunately, there is a tendency for Christians to talk this way as well, especially when they seem to be losing the argument. Because many of us former Christians and or counter-apologists, uh, counter-theologians, we're looking at the Bible and we're talking about what it says and what it seems like it means, and they're just interpreting stories. We are not on the same page. We are never going to be on the same page. And as one among us might say, it all comes down to which way the unicorn horn spirals. Um, I thought it was useful, though, to just step into the mindset of the Jewish rabbi. I thought that, you know, his ideas about perfection were interesting. I hope that we have some conversation about that. And I thought it was useful also to show what I think are the, the worst aspects of Judaism. And frankly, even though Christianity is kind of a syncretistic religion and it, it takes that Judaism, it spins it off in a different direction. Um, I, I think that much of Christianity actually bears the same poisonous marks of exclusive, exclusivistic thinking in their religion. And so I said before, Judaism is one of the few religions that I hate more than Christianity. I think of Christianity almost as the victim. The Christianity was the attempt to make a better Judaism. Judaism is the poison root. It poisons all Abrahamic religions. It's really, really bad. And I would love to find ways to talk about how horrible actual real Judaism is without being called an anti-Semite. Once again, not my fault. I'm not the one who combined their ethnicity with their religion. And so uh, when you do that, you know, you're going to you're going to take some shots. And I think a lot of what Jews call anti-Semitism is unfair. Uh, I think it's, I think it's wrong, aggressive, uh, offensive. They've simply tied themselves to their religion in a way that you cannot speak ill of their religion. Well, I can. I will, I will continue to, and I hope that doesn't lose listeners, um, but perhaps this season, we might, as we talk about uh, some of the Christian sermons, we might just go back and make a note here and there of the Judaism that that thought or idea came from. And we might further talk about how that idea was taken, changed, 
and how it fares over time and how it infects us today. And I think that is enough for today. Next week, we will be joined by Sarah in the pew. And we will see you all next time.